Hello and welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones, a recent law graduate and incoming postgraduate student in law. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tokul, a recent law graduate and incoming trainee solicitor. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and passionate about the intersections of law and feminism. Today on the podcast, we're fortunate to have Carrie Majid, Canadian human rights lawyer and executive director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Human Rights Commission. Do you please introduce yourself? Thanks so much, Courtney. Uh, yep, my name is Carrie. Um, I've been practicing law for over 20 years. Um, I live in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm originally from Ontario. My dad is from uh, Guyana in the West Indies and my mom is Canadian, but of Scottish, English, Irish background. Uh, my dad came to Canada in the late 60s to go to university and met my mom and never went home uh, back to Guyana. So. I have a unique upbringing, um, very much a Canadian, but infused with the West Indian spirit, I guess you'd say. Uh, I, like I said, I live here in uh, St. John's. I've been working for the commission for about 14 years. We moved here um, about 20 years ago. My husband had a job here and we were supposed to only stay for one year, but we loved it so much that we ended up staying. Now we've got two teenagers and um, and an old dog named Wally. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction. And um, so our focus in today's interview will be on the status of women's rights in Canada. But before we begin to talk about this, could you please tell us more about your legal career and specifically what made you decide to pursue a career in law um, and how you became the executive director of a provincial human rights commission? Sure. So. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I was one of those kids that was really like always arguing with people and a little mouthy. And you know, they say, you should be a lawyer. Well, I took that very seriously. I um, enjoyed history, social studies. I was on like debate groups and reach for the top. That's like trivia in Ontario and a um, bit of a nerd that way, but I always enjoyed that. Um, I also um, liked, you know, rooting for the underdog or advocating for social justice issues. And so I kind of was just inclined that way, whether it was law school or some other sort of work in that area, I knew that's where I was headed. But uh, my aunt was a lawyer. Um, for, and I always just thought it was kind of a cool area. I thought it could use my skills well, and I, I enjoyed the kind of intellectual argument side of it as well too. So um, I went to law school at the University of New Brunswick, originally from Ontario. I wanted to try a different part of the country and I'm very, very glad that I went to a small uh, law school. It was a great experience for me. I'm still in close contact with people from there. And it was one of the reasons why we chose to move to Newfoundland and Labrador because I knew people from, from there. Uh, so I worked in private practice for a number of years. Um, it wasn't for me, but that's not to say that it's not for everybody, but I think you know there's some problems with the profession. Um, and uh, I, particularly, in particular, access to justice issues uh, that big firms really are not, um, are not helping that out, that issue out a bit. But anyway, I, you know, I, I, I had kids and um, in a household with two 
parents that work full time, one had to give. And it's kind of nicely tied into this conversation because, you know, the studies show that more and more women graduate from law school than men, but after about five to seven years, which is what happened to me uh, with two young toddlers, um, my choice in a smaller legal market was to work for government. And that's what I did. Now, I don't regret that at all. For me, I was quite lucky. Um, I enjoy my work. I enjoy the people that I work with and um, the support and flexibility that I get working for the provincial government. So. So that's great. Um, at the Human Rights Commission, um, I was also, you know, interested in this sort of work. And in this small center, there's not a lot of opportunities for lawyers in the social justice world. Like we don't have Amnesty International here or other, or like LEAF or anything like that, organizations where you can be a practicing lawyer and advocate for um, like real, uh, substantive uh, issues of equity. Um, so the Human Rights Commission uh, is a great fit for people that have that kind of mindset. Um, uh, so I was very fortunate to get this job. At the commission, what we do is really a few main things. We manage a human rights complaints process. Uh, so if you feel like you've been discriminated or harassed, there's a complaints process that you can go through. We speak out a lot about human rights issues publicly in the media. We work with community partners um, and in the province to advance and promote human rights. So those are the things I like about the job. And like I said, I'm very fortunate to, to be in this position. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And it sounds like you get to do some really interesting work with the commission. So yeah. in preparing for this, this interview, I was looking through the, the commission's website and there didn't appear to be that many applications made for discrimination on the basis of sex or gender or really, I guess, many decisions. So why is that? Is it because women no longer face discrimination or perhaps because it's difficult to prove this kind of, uh, this kind of discrimination in, in a way that's necessary in a human rights complaint? So that is the crux of the problem. And that is the crux of the frustration that I, I find when I go to work every day. So our, uh, I work in the area of administrative law. So, you know, administrative tribunals like human rights commissions and others were set up to try and create informal, easy ways for people to resolve disputes. Unfortunately, they have become uh, like a mini court. So they're adversarial, they're, uh, you know, they're complex, there are delays, and it's not very accessible to people. So I see there are a number of different reasons why people don't bring complaints to us, whatever the reason. Um, and it's certainly not because there's no sexism in Canada anymore. Um, I think that people come don't come because they might not know we exist or that it's a resource available to them. So that's, you know, on us. The ones that do know we exist, it's a big emotional investment for people to bring a complaint on their own, even though we're here to support and navigate people through a process. It's still not a, uh, a healthy process for people to, to go through. And it is an individual based complaint system. So it, the onus is on that person to do a lot of the work, to tell their story, 
and as we all know, the legal system is not really very trauma informed. So we try to make changes where we can, but we're not there yet. So you have to write out what happened to you in order to prove your claim, say at a hearing. You'd have to explain how the harm inflicted on you equates to dollars, right? That's how our legal system knows how to make people whole. So check, 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 you get $10,000. To me, that's not really solving uh, problems and it's not helping people. Um, so that's you know some of the reasons. There's process reasons, there's access reasons. People still have to get up every day and go to work and do what they need to do. So you know, if you're in a workplace, do you wanna take that burden on to file a complaint against an employer? Um, that's a difficult place to put people in, especially those most marginalized or in precarious kinds of, of jobs. Do you remember a couple of years ago, Courtney, um, there was a, like a, a, a little bit of a scandal here about harassment in the House of Assembly? Yes, I do remember. So we did a little bit of media on that. We talked to some people, uh, you know, there were um, statutory reasons why we would not be able to take complaints from members. Uh, but we still talked about the issue just generally about sexual harassment. And we asked people to just call us and let us know their stories, tell us what was happening on the ground. They didn't have to file a complaint. We weren't gonna take names. We weren't gonna, we just wanted to hear what was happening. And I was quite shocked at the number of people that called our office to say that was happening to them, men, women, but mainly women, and the most troubling thing was things were happening in small workplaces. They still worked there. They lived maybe in rural communities where there weren't a lot of job opportunities or they, that was a good, semi good paying job for them. And they could not afford to leave. They had children to support or families to support, bills to pay, all these sorts of things. And in a lot of cases, the person who was harassing was also the business owner. So, you know, it really places women in difficult situations. Do you stay and not work and not provide for your family? Or sorry, leave and not provide for your family? Or do you stay and have to uh, uh, endure those difficult situations and traumatic uh, situations? So I, I was really struck by the, the volume of people that called our office to tell us their stories, but felt like they had no place to go right? Uh, even in heavily unionized workplaces where they have that extra support, they still felt filing a grievance, filing a complaint by its very nature sets you off as in the, on this adversarial path where there is no ability to re-enter that workplace and continue on in a better sort of working environment. So struck by that. Um, so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. That's definitely the way it sounds. And it does sound like quite a burdensome system on the victim, as you've portrayed it at least. Um, so now if we broaden our focus to across Canada, um, could you please describe to us the status of women's rights in Canada today? I mean, I think there's um, better people than me to talk about the specifics of that, but you know, I think that 
like I was saying, there has been some progress. Certainly, we see women in in higher positions in politics, in business, in the law, for example. Even when I graduated over 20 years ago, it was pretty well even the number of graduates. Now, you know, I'm I sit on a committee with women judges across the country, and so these are like seasoned professionals who've been around for a long time and have seen a lot. And they're still complaining about the same issues that they complained about when they started practicing law, say in the eighties or the nineties. Um, and the same things that we used to complain about in women in the law groups in 2000, 1999 are the same things that I hear young lawyers talking about today. But that is, you know, that is for a very privileged sort of group. And I'm not trying to to you know, stereotype that just because you're in law school, you come from a privileged background. But I think we have to acknowledge the privilege that we do hold as, uh, as part of the legal profession. And I think where there may be advances that way, but when you look at other issues that impact more marginalized women, um, whether it's childcare costs, domestic violence, um, pay equity issues, those are happening right here in our province that impact the ability of women to, to you know, support themselves and, uh, and do what they need to do and to live their life. Even issues, I, I heard this really interesting podcast about just urban planning and design and transportation and how that impacts women with children the most and the way our cities are designed and the bus routes in town, uh, they don't really help people who need to get to work, get kids to school or, or whatever it is. The school um, day, who invented kids getting off at 2.30, 3 o'clock? Not people um, that have uh, women who have to work, right? Um, childcare issues, they still say, even though women are working full-time, they still are responsible for the majority of childcare and household uh, duties and management. So, you know, these issues exist across the country. There is progress, but I see it as a more systemic issue. Uh, you know, and the people who need the progress the most are not seeing it. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you mentioned, um, like, for example, the urban planning, because there's there's this really incredible book that you, you may have read if you haven't, I'm sure you'd be interested to read it called Invisible Women. It's by Carolyn Criado Perez. And in that she talks about how the collection of data has an impact on women how, and how women are often left out of things like urban planning and design of like even like phones and keyboards. It's it's very and interesting. Seatbelts and seatbelts and healthcare and all of these things. Even I was talking to somebody last week about I injured my ACL um, playing tennis and I have to, I'm on a wait list for surgery for uh, ACL repair. Anyway, uh, somebody was telling me that their uh, daughter injured her ACL um, playing soccer. And then the conversation shifted to that there had been some research that soccer cleats for women who play at a high level are essentially smaller men's shoes. But the the way women's bodies are set up and the way that they hit the, the, the astroturf or the fake grass in these cleats is a different, I don't know, angle than for men. And they have a higher level 
of ACL tears and other injuries simply because of the design of soccer shoes. So I thought that that was a really interesting sort of understanding and maybe it comes from that book. Yeah, yeah, and not, not to get too off topic, I'm a piano player, and, and I read that, um, you know, the, the size of the keys on a piano are designed for men's hands, and that's why yeah. we have more male professional piano players, so, like, it impacts every single facet of our lives Interesting, women. huh? Yeah. Um, yeah, but to get back to the, you know, <laughs> women's rights in Canada, um, so, I mean, you, may, you touched on this a little bit, but since you started practicing law in 2001, um, how do you think women's rights in Canada have progressed? And do you think there's less sexism, sexism today than there was 20 years ago? Or is it about the same, maybe more? Like, what, what's your take on that? I think it's really nuanced, right? You know, like a good parallel is, say, um, you know, the, the fight for racial justice or, or civil rights. So, you know, like 50 or 60 years ago, we had signs that said, no, whatever, allowed. It was blatant, it was obvious, uh, but now it's much more nuanced and subtle. And that's where the law is, can't, hasn't caught up with that. And the law is not able to see that. First of all, the people who are making decisions cannot see that, see where the, the discrimination or the sexism or the racism has occurred because they don't understand it. They don't have that lived experience. They don't have that knowledge. The law doesn't understand it. They don't know how to prove it. They don't know how to prove it with evidence. That's the way, again, our legal system works. You have to have some sort of document or a witness who will say X, Y, Z. And that, that's in some cases not possible. Um, so the systemic issues, I think, are what's hardest. I think that's a very good point. It always does go back to the systemic Problems built into our society, sadly. Um, okay, so um, although the Newfoundland and Labrador Human Rights Commission hasn't adjudicated many cases on sex-based or gender-based discrimination, there could still be implicit bias women face on the basis of sex or gender identity. So what do you think are some of the challenges in bringing such a claim for this kind of discrimination? Yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's the problem. Like, you know, there's a whole body of work about bias in decision makers, right? How do you, I mean, we all sort of have that uh, bias because it's really like um, our histories, our backgrounds, how we were raised, our viewpoints on the world, how we see the world, the lens we bring, the, the, the knowledge that we bring to making decisions. So we have that. And how do we fight against that? Uh, is it training? I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. Is it making sure we have diverse decision makers at the table? Yes. Are, uh, is, it, is it making sure that these diverse decision makers are actually having a role to play in designing the systems, right? So it's not just about having, you know, 50% women and 50% men, but it's changing the fundamental kind of um, approach to in our case, human rights decision-making, right? The structures that we design as lawyers, because really it's lawyers that are designing these, these systems. Are they healthy? Do they work for people? Are they accessible? Are they inclusive? All these issues need to be designed in a way that puts the people coming to these systems first and not us, not our profession. And it's so hard, we're looking at how can we revamp our process? 
And it's a bunch of lawyers and people who have done this in the room working there. And we're trying to bring in new voices. And uh, you know, I'm really intrigued by this concept of co-creating a process, not just you know um, coming up with our ideas, which is important. We need you know we're the ones that work in it every day, and you know we see a lot of different situations. But then, and then giving it to groups, community groups, and say, okay, what do you think about what we've developed? It's really about bringing people in at different at the beginning and saying, what what can we imagine a human rights commission to be? And I think it's only when we get to those structural changes are we gonna see differences, right? Because if I have my own viewpoint about the world and sexism or racism or this or whatever, and I feel like I'm fairly progressive, but I have to put myself into a, you know, what is it like, um, this, a square peg into a round hole kind of thing, round hole. If I had to put myself in the constraints of the human rights complaint process and the adjudicative process with the remedies or the legal tests that are available to me, then I'm still kind of constrained by those limits, right? So we gotta move the law, we gotta move our processes and we gotta open up who's involved in designing those processes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think you you give a lot of good insights from like a systemic level on on what can be done. But if, you know, we look at the women who who might want to bring this kind of complaint to a human rights commission, given that proving, you know, sex or gender-based discrimination can be difficult in a tribunal, what can we do or how can we encourage women to bring their claims forward when they face discrimination? So this is what a lot of commissions are working on right now. How do we support people to do this properly? How do we bring that trauma-informed lens? How do we bring the right information, even advice? You know, again, these systems were set up a long time ago and they haven't really changed much in 60 years. And uh, it's not enough for us to be like a neutral sort of body that just processes forms. Like we need to be able to navigate people through a system, we need to give them proper information and tools and build capacity in people so that they can make the right decisions for them. They need to know what the law is, what the legal options are, what the tests are, and those are all very difficult. This is not to say that I think everybody should have lawyers at the table, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to, to be mindful about how we talk to people, how we support people, and the information that we give them so that they feel capable of making those decisions for themselves. But it's difficult and we have to be transparent about that. Anybody who brings a court case on their own, it's gonna be difficult, right? That's a huge burden on people. Um, I don't know much about this new process, but at the Canadian Human Rights Commission, which is the federal human rights body, they have um, a a housing advocate now under their roof. And they have the ability, it's not individual complaints, it's they are, people can bring systemic level complaints and there's a, it's called a review panel. I don't know much about it. Uh, so I don't know if it's good or bad or fit to eat or whatever, but um, this, it, it sounds like a, a, 
an interesting concept. So it's not a class action as such where, you know, you're bringing specific claims against whoever. It is a, it's about bringing forward systemic issues brought by a group of people, a community-based organization, like uh, a legal advocacy organization. It can be a lot. So you're spreading that burden on people and they get the support that they need. Yeah, that sounds like a good, um, I suppose, outlook on the whole situation because it can indeed be very burdensome and take a real toll. Um, so as a final question, if any of our listeners are hoping to pursue a career in human rights law, what advice would you give to them? Um, advice, I sound like an old person here now. Um, you know what? I've had lots of students over the years, articling students, other law students, and I take a lot of hope from them. Right, I, I um, I've met some amazing students, very progressive. I don't have to explain anything about, you know, how we want to approach human rights complaints. They get it. They they understand. So I'm very very encouraged by uh, younger lawyers that I see um, going on in their path. You can first of all do what you need to do. So that's my advice to you. You've got to do what's right for you. You got to practice law the right way that's for you. You got to be true to yourself, uh, honor your values. Don't try to be like a lawyer you see on TV or somebody who you think is a big shot lawyer at your firm. Like be who you are. I am the exact same lawyer with more experience, obviously, but the same person I would think, maybe I'm not, the same person I am as when I first started practicing law because I had to be my own personality, like my own, who I am. Um, but you can, you don't necessarily have to go and be a human rights lawyer, right? You can be a corporate commercial lawyer, but bring a human rights perspective to what you do. You can practice any sort of law, but bring that lens, be concerned about people and your clients, care about them, you know, give them good advice, um, you know, support people and realize that this is scary for people. This is our job. We've been trained to do this. We understand the language. We understand the law. We, you know, I remember going to court one of my first times and there was a client there. For me, it was nothing. You put on a robe, you show up, my Lord, use this, that, yes, whatever. That person was petrified, right? So, you know, Talk to people, get their, you know, set expectations. Make sure you're answering people's questions, communicate with them well. Um, and I think just be true to yourself uh, and fight for what you believe in, I guess. Um, and that's really it. You'll find your way. You know, when I started law, I thought I would do one thing and I ended up doing something completely different. So you'll find your way. Thank you. I think that's some excellent advice. And I think the advice on, you know, keeping people at the forefront of what you do is, is so important because like you said, if you're a lawyer, then the kind of situations you deal with are every day. But for that, for that client, this could be the worst moment in their life that you're kind of supporting them through. And I think, you know, like you mentioned, keeping that at the forefront of what you do is really important. So thank you for that. Some really good advice. I mean, you also have to have boundaries. You got to take care of yourself, right? Um, I don't 
you know, there's a lot of talk about self-care and compassion fatigue and all this sort of stuff. To me, it's more of a structural problem that I'm feeling that. Um, and it's something that's bigger that needs to be to fix. Like, um, but you, you know, I, I just say, you know, be mindful of that as well. You, you know, you got to go home to your family at the end of the day and you have to take care of yourself as well. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us today. It was lovely to speak to you. No problem. Anytime. In today's Feminist News Roundup, a woman is set to become Lord Chief Justice for the first time since the post was created 755 years ago. Dame Victoria Sharp and Dame Sue Carr have made it to the final shortlist. According to the Telegraph, the law may need to be amended to accommodate the title of Lady Chief Justice. Also in today's news roundup, police in Calgary, Canada, have collected more than 20 cell phones, tablets and cameras connected with an investigation of Richard Robert Mantha, who has been accused of several charges involving five women, including kidnapping, forcible confinement, sexual assault with a weapon, sexual assault causing bodily harm and administering a noxious substance, according to CBC News. Finally, Reuters reports a former attorney for global law firm DLA Piper has filed a lawsuit against the firm alleging discrimination. Anisha Mehta told a federal court in Manhattan, New York, that she was fired by the firm in 2022, less than a week after submitting a request for maternity leave. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.